I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. After Jesus was tempted uh, by Satan, testing him as the Son of God, um, Jesus began his ministry. We saw the tempting last week, and we considered Christ's triumph over Satan. This week, we consider the beginning of Christ's ministry in the region of Galilee. So if you'll read with me, Matthew chapter 4, verse 12 through 25. Now, when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all the Syria and they brought him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains and those oppressed by demons and those having seizures and paralytics and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Amen. Today, I want to start with a question that's been on my mind, and the question is simple. It is, what is the message of Christianity to the world? What precisely is our message to the world? Um, is it that we must repent, place faith in Christ, and therefore have eternal life? Well, yes, yes, and yes to that message. It's God's love in Christ that's given us everlasting life. And we must repent, and we must place faith in Jesus Christ, and there is eternal life. However, I ask you to think, is the gospel only a message about what happens to me? Is it only about my future? 
my life, my death, my resurrection. Hebrews 6 tells us to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and to go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God. Instructions about washings, the laying out of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. This is things we need to, having received them, now pursue something bigger than us in our personal future. Jesus proclaimed, if you look in verse 23, the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom. Now, a kingdom is bigger than me. So, at the very least, the gospel of the kingdom means that we're part of something bigger than our own biographies, right? I was talking to Nydia, and I was explaining the difference between in systematic theology, the study of personal eschatology with cosmic eschatology. So, personal eschatology just asks things like, um, what happens when I die? Is there an inter intermediate state between now and the second coming? What of the judgment? What of the resurrection of the body? That's personal eschatology, and that's very important. Very important. And we have hope because of what God has done for us personally. However, there is a kingdom, and there is a king. And there is a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So this is much bigger than us. The gospel is not contained in my insignificant life. It's part of something much bigger, and therein I find my significance. So the Christian message to the world, I want to say it includes but it is not summed up by my personal salvation. The Christian message to the world is much bigger than that. And I would say in its broadest construal, the Christian message is that God has invaded the corrupt world with his love and his power. He has reestablished his kingdom through Jesus Christ, he is making war against all evil, and he will reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. And you can be part of that kingdom through allegiance to Jesus Christ. Jesus came and began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He went throughout all Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And this is a gospel that is opposed to the kingdom of darkness. You know why the reason the Son of God came, according to 1 John? To destroy the works of the devil. The reason the Son of God appeared is to destroy the works of the devil. You know what Paul says to the church, I think in Romans 16? He says, God will soon crush Satan under your feet. Brothers, let, let this be our confidence. And let this be what excites you about Christ. 
Not just that he has given you and me a personal future in which to hope, but he has given a kingdom to us that will not pass away. And he is ruling and reigning. And he will put all his enemies under his feet. And the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Our God reigns. That's the message of Christianity. And you are invited to enter that reign through Jesus Christ. So we sing songs like, um, anyone sing, I'll fly away, O glory? That's true. It's true. We will be with the, Barrett sing that song. He's raising his hands. That is true. He, we will go to be with the Lord. And in that is great comfort. Great comfort. But my fear with that kind of singing only is that it makes a congregation more excited to die than for God to rule. What about another song we used to sing? Um, Kings and kingdoms will all pass away, but there's just something about that name. You ever sing that song? That's true. There is something much greater about the name of Christ than any other name. But is it true that kings and kingdoms will pass away? No, it is not. There is a kingdom that will not pass away, according to Scripture. Daniel 7 says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and presented before him. And to him was given a dominion, and an everlasting dominion, and a kingdom that will not pass away. So it's not true that, that rulership will pass away. Rather, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus went proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. If I could sum up the kingdom of God for you in three hammer strokes, it would be this. Number one, the kingdom of God is God's sovereign rule and governance. It's anywhere that he is king. That's the kingdom of God. That's how I explained it to Wesley. Wherever Jesus is king, that's the kingdom of God. And that kingdom is expanding. Number two, the kingdom of God has infiltrated the world of darkness and is gradually taking over. So Satan is called the God of this world in the New Testament. And Jesus taught us that his kingdom is infiltrating. And the New Testament speaks about this in sundry in various ways, like light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Or the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's the smallest seed and it grows to be the biggest tree and the birds of the air lodge in its nest. So the kingdom has infiltrated and is gradually taking over the kingdom of darkness. Number three, the, king, the kingdom can be entered into through faith in Jesus Christ. And so that's the kingdom of God. It is the sovereign rule of God that is assaulting the kingdom of Satan and which you can enter into through faith in Jesus Christ. So I have three uh, points today, three 
topics I want to talk about based on this passage. Number one, the kingdom's arrival. Number two, the kingdom's requirements. Number three, the kingdom's power. Number one, the kingdom's arrival. We see that Jesus withdrew to Galilee in verse 12 because John the Baptist had been arrested. That is to say that the Jewish leadership was going to put a stop or going to try to put a stop to this um, messianic uprising that John had introduced and Jesus had taken over. And so they're arresting John. And so Jesus went north to Galilee, which is a much less populated area, away from the Jewish powers, and he began to preach the kingdom of God. Now, I know for us sitting in, in this room in 2024, when we say kingdoms, it makes us just sound like fairy tales. It makes it sound like what I'm talking about is one step removed from like real reality. And you have to understand that in the first century, when this was written, this was not a fairy tale. There were kingdoms. And granted, we talk about states and nations now, but then it was kingdoms who took over. It was kingdoms who were feared, and it was kings who had power. Alexander the Great took over the whole known world, basically, in around 300 BC. And he spread Greek culture throughout the Greek world so that the arts, the language, and even the gods of the Greek became the norm in the whole world. Then the Romans took over. And one of the main confessions of the Romans was Caesar is Lord. So you have to understand, kingdoms were very... Was not, it was not fantasy. Kingdoms would kill you. Kingdoms would send you to the arena and have you fight actual lions and each other. Kingdoms had power. So in that frame, um, the kingdom's arrival is spoken of here as the kingdom is arriving through Jesus Christ. So look, at Matthew is insistent. Is he not? Is, he is insistent that the events of Jesus' life are actually fulfilling the Old Testament in the sense that he is replaying the history of Israel in his life. Now, we've talked about this before. Um, the virgin birth fulfills Isaiah 7.14. He is God with us. Uh, the move to and from Egypt fulfills Hosea's um, prophecy out of Egypt, I have called my son. That recapitulates what, what Israel did. Um, then Jesus was baptized, or he passes through the waters and then goes into the wilderness. That sounds a lot like what Israel did, passing through the waters and going into the wilderness for 40 years, mapping onto Jesus' 40 days. Um, so, Christ is fulfilling the Old Testament. 
And Matthew continues this to, to show us this with his move to Capernaum. He says this, this fulfills Isaiah 9, 11 through 12. That's the passage he quotes in verse 16, 15 and 16. Now, what's very interesting? So he moves to Capernaum, and this is in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, listen, check this out. Um, Capernaum, in the territory, the tribal territories of Zebulun and Naphtali, 12 tribes, they had allotted territories, Zebulun and Naphtali. They were the northernmost tribes in Israel. If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to go to your maps in the back of your Bible. If you have a map in the back of your Bible, and you have a map that says the 12 tribes of Israel, that's where you should be. And you'll see how the land was, was allotted to the 12 tribes of Israel. So if you see the Sea of Galilee, kind of up to the north, you see Naphtali, and then right below that, Zebulun. Now, keep your page open there. These, as the northernmost tribes, were a region of great darkness. Why is that? Now, if you were, you can't attack from the sea, right? They, they weren't at that point attacking from the sea. And even if you did attack from the sea, it would be Asher that you would attack most of Israel's enemies were in the east and from in the north. And the problem for these enemies is with their horses and their chariots and all these things, they couldn't cross the Jordan River and they couldn't cross over the Sea of Galilee. So what they would do is they would come from the north, circumvent the Jordan River and the Sea of Galilee and come down into the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun. So when Babylon and Persia were taking over and came to dominate the people of God in Israel, they came from the north. And the first tribes that would get it are Zebulun and Naphtali. And this is precisely why Isaiah talks about Zebulun and Naphtali as being regions and realms of darkness. But the prophecy is, on them a light has dawned. So by applying this to Christ, what is the light that has dawned? It's Christ and his ministry. In this region, the kingdom of God has arrived. Not the kingdoms of the world, not the kingdom of Assyria and Babylon, but the kingdom of God now has come in these regions and on them a light has dawned. So this is the kingdom of God that is now advancing upon Israel, bringing light and life where there was always death and slavery and destruction in years past. So there's a reversal here. He's not coming with a yoke of slavery. The kingdom of God is coming in fulfillment of the promises of the scriptures.
two things I want you to know about this reality. Number one, and I know we've been down this road before, but please understand that the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. And as Christians who have now grown up in the Lord, as disciples, we are to look at how the Old Testament looks to Christ. I know I've told you this before, but when a, an infant, when you point at something, an infant is going to look at your finger, not at the thing which you're pointing. But now, as grown-up citizens in the kingdom, we see that the Old Testament is the finger that always pointed to Jesus Christ. And this is precisely what Jesus told us to do when we read the Old Testament. He says in Luke 24, 44, These are the words that I spoke to you when I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. In other words, the whole Old Testament must be fulfilled in my life. He told the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have life. It's they that bear witness about me. So the Old Testament has a, the function of shining the light on Jesus Christ. Number two, understand that the age of the law and the prophets have given way to the age of the kingdom. Luke 16, 16. Jesus said, the law and the prophets were until John the Baptist. Since then, since then, the good news of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom is preached. So, the kingdom has arrived in the person and ministry of Jesus Christ. That's the arrival of the kingdom that we see in this passage. But the kingdom also has requirements. Yes, it brings light and life but it also has requirements. What are they? Look with me in verse 18. Let me read this portion to you again. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. So they immediately follow Jesus Christ. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called to them immediately. They left the boat and their father and followed him. So what response does the kingdom require? It's discipleship. And the call to discipleship is a call to a new allegiance to Jesus Christ. So what, okay, so discipleship is a call to allegiance. How, how do we pledge our allegiance to Jesus Christ then? Two words. You forsake your former life and you follow Jesus Christ. You forsake and you follow, and that's precisely what we see in this passage. Look in verse 20. Immediately, we're told that Peter and Andrew left their nets and followed him. Now, they left their nets. Why is that mentioned? 
Because that's how they made money. That's how they made a living. So they left their source of income to follow Jesus Christ. What about the sons of Zebedee? What did they do? Verse 20, they left the boat. They owned a boat. Probably a 40-foot long fishing boat with their nets. But they left that. And they not only left their boat, they left their father. And they followed him. So they left their source of income and even their association with their family that guaranteed their inheritance of this business to follow Jesus. And the promise was, I will make you fishers of men. You're not going to be drawing fish from the water. You're going to be drawing men into the kingdom, in other words. So here are two examples of forsaking and following in these four disciples. And that just shows that there is a radical reorientation of life that is required to become a disciple. That's what a disciple is. It is a new allegiance to Jesus Christ. It's, so discipleship, in other words, it's to no longer make you and me the center of my own life. I am now not the center of my own life, and neither are you if you're a disciple. The call to discipleship is to redraw Christ as the center of your life, to displace yourself as the center and put Christ as the center. And now all of my ambitions, the missions I have before, all of that goes to the wayside. Christ is... There's that line by Piper, which I love so much. God is not the means to achieve the goals that you had before you were a Christian. He is the goal. Complete reorientation now. So the call to discipleship is a new allegiance of forsaking and following Jesus Christ. (coughs) Nidia and I went to a great conference called the Foundations Conference in 2019. It was fantastic. We, We got to... Um, listen to great preaching. Uh, who was there? I know Paul Washer was there. We met and listened to him. Um, Steve lost. It was just a great, a great time. One of the speakers there was a man named Tony Jones, missionary to Haiti. Um, I'll, I'll send you the link to this because they recorded it. This was a man of faith. And this was a man who exemplified forsaking and following Jesus Christ. It was an inhuman faith that just exuded from this man. Um, He told us, here's how he started his testimony. He said, I don't don't remember being born, but I remember being born again. (laughs) I thought that was a great way to start a talk. He said he was a log home builder for 40 years, I think he was 38 or 39 when he came to know Christ. And he owned his own log home building company, very successful. Four years after he came to know Christ, he came to a point 
where he said, Lord, I don't want to work for the world anymore. I want to work for you. So he sold the company and all his tools, and he said, Lord, just do with me whatever. So he went to, I think, Peru first, and then to Haiti, and he's been a missionary there for years. Um, and he has a, just an amazing testimony about surviving um, earthquakes and, and starting a coffee company up in the mountains of Haiti where these people can actually make money. And he, was, he established a church there, and he is just um, exuding holiness. And not, not, it's very interesting. His demeanor was much more different than a lot of men we think about when we say holiness. He was much more loose and fun-loving, but there was, there was a... It was like there was a faith there that was so palpable. I mean, you could taste it. This man was exuding faith. Remind me to send you that clip, all right? Remind me to send you that. It's an it's a encouraging testimony. That's what forsaking and following Jesus Christ definitely looks like, right? That's what it definitely looks like. So let's not pull any punches there. That's exactly what the disciples did. That's exactly what Tony Jones did, missionary to Haiti. Well, so what does, this, what does this look like for us? What does forsaking and following look like for us? Well, first of all, I would say it might look like Tony Jones. Why not? Why not learn the language and go? Who, who knows what the Lord's calling you to? I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I don't presume to be a prophet. But don't, let's, let's not in this church fall into the trap of us saying, well, that's far too radical for me. That's not even realistic. I don't want to be realistic. And even part, it's so easy for me to say. It's so easy for me to say. But someone who's making this decision to be a little bit more radical, well, that's not so easy. So I don't, I don't presume to be up here cavalierly suggesting that you leave America and go, and go to missions somewhere. I know that's a very hard decision that takes a lot of prayer, but who knows? What I'm saying is leave the door open, right? Maybe, maybe it's different than missionary work. That's number one. That's the obvious way you could forsake and follow. Number two, ask yourself, and please ask yourself. When we talk about discipleship, forsaking and following, this new allegiance that we see in this passage, just ask yourself, does my life look any different at all? Because I'm a Christian. Or if I were to forsake Christ right now, would my life essentially not change?
in any aspect of every aspect of your life? Would it just essentially be the same? Something to ask yourself. Something to ask myself. Third, consider that it would not glorify God to abandon your wife and family that God has given you to provide for. Now understand this. There's a difference between Zebedee and John leaving the family business to follow Christ and you leaving wife and children. There's a difference there. Uh, A.W. Well, now I already said it, but A.W. Tozer was a great man of God, but he was not a great husband, unfortunately. And his wife remarried after he passed away and said, what you have to understand about A.W. Tozer is that he was God's man. My husband now is my man. And that's a sad thing to hear. So there's, uh, men are always sinful. Don't look up to men. So what do we do? So if we're not going to f- abandon our, our family and our responsibilities that God has given us, what do we do? Well, repurpose the life you already have for Jesus Christ. And I guess we could just have a conversation and come up with like 25 different ways to do that. I understand that. Um, Understand that though what we want to do is advance the kingdom of God and be fishers of men. Have an agenda with your life is what I'm talking about. Have an agenda that's bigger than yourself. And the kingdom of God is my agenda. It's what I'm after. How do I do that? You know, I, I think a great analogy here is um, in, during World War II, the whole country was on board, from what I understand. The men went to war, and you know what? The women went to work in the factories. Um, here's, I think this is from World War II Museum.org. Here's a little paragraph. It says, women in uniform took office, took office and clerical jobs, jobs in the armed forces to free men to fight. They drove trucks, repaired airplanes, worked as laboratory technicians, rigged parachutes, served as radio operators, analyzed photographs, flew military aircraft across the country, test flew, newly repaired airplanes, and even trained anti-aircraft artillery gunners by acting as flying targets. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but apparently they did that. I don't know how that worked out. The point, though, is, though they weren't out on the front line, like our brothers and sisters whom heart cry missionary society support, they had an agenda. They were making weapons and building things for the war. They, were, they had an agenda. They joined, right? Um, so this is why. This is why it's important that you're in a church right now. Because what does Paul say? It is God's aim 
that through his church he might make the manifold wisdom of God. He may manifest the wisdom of God. It's through the church that God acts and he crushes Satan. He builds his body. It's through the church acting together. And that's why when we membership and fellowship, good stuff, good stuff. But it's more than just getting together. There's a, we're building something here. As are other churches. As are other churches in our area. But let's have a, a kingdom agenda. Like, you know the JWs over here on, on 300? Like, I want to have the agenda that they have. Only the right one. <laughs> I, you know how they have JW.org up there? I want, I want like, to have a building on 300 that says Jesus Christ is Lord. With a, with a cross on it. And, it, you know... I don't know. <laughs> so, but you don't, you, you feel what I'm saying about an agenda? Like, let's, with purpose. It's not, it's not about me. It's not just about going to heaven. I mean, that's a beautiful thing. And when I am dying on my deathbed, I am going to cling to Jesus Christ who promised to take me to where he is. But the life I now live in the flesh I live not only by faith, but to work hard, like the Apostle Paul said. He even said, I worked harder than them all. So let's work for the kingdom of God. Somehow. Somehow. Uh, this is, you know, so you figure out the application for your life. I can't just tell you what to do with your time, your opportunities, your resources, whatever they may be, have an agenda for the kingdom of God. Be like the women who did all these things to further the war effort. If you're not on the front lines, then get behind. All right. So we forsake and follow. That's the call to allegiance. Third, that was the requirement of the kingdom. This is the power of the kingdom. And this is very simple. I think just reading this, you can see what I'm talking about. Verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the kingdom of God and healing disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains and those oppressed by demons. And having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. First of all, what Jesus is doing in his healings is, as you can see, he is assaulting the effects of the fall in his healings. It's a revolution. He's defying the, that which Satan caused. Second of all, sandwiched in between his healings is those 
oppressed by demons he's healing. He is driving out evil from his territory. This is an assault against the kingdom of darkness. He's not just doing something nice. He is destroying the works of the devil. So, this is, I mean, we need to have this attitude of onward Christian soldier. That, that is the message of God's love in the gospel. It is the love and power of God has invaded, is infiltrating, is dominating and taking over the kingdoms of darkness to the glory of God the Father. So the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, is the invasion of the corrupted world with the power of God. And think of ministry as an assault against the kingdom of darkness for the glory of God. Notice, please, please notice, verse 23. Because some people say, yes, kingdom work is what the church should be doing. Kingdom work, and they, they set up some good stuff, and it, it, for some reason it's always a soup kitchen. I don't know why that is, but there's, there's, there's a lot of good stuff happening there. But... Invariably, this turns secular, and God is not proclaimed, Christ is not glorified, and we're just sending people to hell on full stomachs. That's the problem. Please understand that he did not just heal. He did not just cast out demons, but what did he do? He went about proclaiming the kingdom of God. So you know that phrase by uh, Francis of Assisi? Preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. I, I hear you, but you need words to proclaim the gospel. You need words. Your life is what gives the words credence. So you need to use words, right? You, you need if, if we're going to tell people, there's a lot of... I mean, it's simple, but there's a lot we could say about the gospel, right? Is that God created you in his image to glorify him and enjoy him forever. But man fell. Has, everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. But, and, and therefore, since God is holy... And he is a holy judge. The right thing for him to do is to send you to eternal destruction. But since God is love, he stepped in and took the punishment himself. And that's why Jesus Christ on the cross said, Father, why have you forsaken me? And not only was Christ forsaken, but he rose again as our king and our Lord. And now as our risen king, our Lord, he ascended to the right hand of God. And he rules and reigns right now. And he will put all his enemies under his feet. And his kingdom will come. That's a lot of information, right? So you need to use words. It's not just your life. It's use words. And that's, that's what discipleship is. 
I don't think we're going to blurt that out to everyone we meet on the street necessarily, although maybe. But we're going to disciple people in this way, helping them understand the fullness of the gospel and the gospel of the kingdom. And what, here's Revelation 12, 11. How does the church conquer? How does the church conquer? By the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Mm. That's, they have overcome. They've overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. They've overcome. There's that kingdom versus kingdom idea. And, and we talk about the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So if we think about the kingdom of God as a rebellion, all, all, our life also, too, is a rebellion against the world, the flesh, and the devil. We are opposed. This is a revolution. So we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. I, I was reading this to the kids again a few days ago and I told them the purpose here is not be nice it's not it's not the gospel of be nice I think Vodi Bakum has talked about that a lot and he talks about some legitimate problems but that's what I'm talking about though is when I choose love over hatred it's not I'm not being nice I'm rebelling against the flesh Right? So it's all, think of the opposite of, of, of love, joy, peace, patience. It's a rebellion against the flesh. I'm defying the world, the flesh, and the devil through the power of God. That's why God's power is in the church, so that he can use us as vessels to assault the kingdoms of darkness. Not that he needs us, but... In the wisdom of God, he has condescended to use us to that end. So, um, let's have an agenda for the kingdom of God. You know, I heard someone say, Caesar is Lord was the, was the demand of the Roman Empire. That lasted 400 years longer than America has been around, from what I understand. Dominant. The, the power of Caesar was dominant. And the kingdom of God started with one man who was hung on a cross. Wherein is the power? Well, now Caesar is a salad dressing. And Jesus Christ has cathedrals in every nation. And he is worshipped by all peoples and tongues. Well, the Caesar has, of his Lord has died. And now is a cartoon. But Jesus Christ's Lord is gathering people from every nation and tongue. And he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So join those of us who have joined. 
have an agenda. If you do not know where you are with Christ, you must repent and believe. Repent means to turn. It's basically one word for what I'm talking about when I talked about forsaking, following, and placing your allegiance to Jesus Christ. You must turn to Jesus Christ through faith, and then you pledge your allegiance to him with your life. Okay, so if you want more information about that, I'd love to talk to you, but Jesus paid the penalty that you deserve. He rose again, and if you place your faith with him, he promises to unite you to himself. Union with Christ. That, that means that he takes you. What he has is shared with you. So that resurrection life is, is given to you through faith in Jesus Christ. So, the rebellion against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Jesus said... This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Let's get behind that effort. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, I thank you.